0: Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. This is Perspective 10, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 2005 Air Force Academy graduate who attended NGEPT and went on to become a U-28 pilot. With 2,700 flight hours, over 1,600 of which were in combat, gives her more hours than 95% of all Air Force pilots. With multiple master's degrees and an ongoing doctorate here at MIT, she strongly advocates for continued education beyond military service. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrea Henschel.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's good to be doing an in-person interview today because we connected via LinkedIn back when I was up in the Springs, but um, I'm here for summer leave in Massachusetts.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for making the trip up here.
0: Of course. So to start things off, can you give some background about yourself? What initially brought you to the academy?
1: Sure. So, I come from a fairly long line of service members. My, both my grandfathers served one in the Marine Corps and the other in the Army Air Corps, and then my father served in the Army. So, he was stationed in Germany when I was born, and I kind of grew up moving every few years. Uh, eventually, when he separated, he settled down in Norfolk, Nebraska, so middle school and high school. were in a small but very supportive town. <laughs> And I I don't know if I would call us poor. I don't think I would go that far. But we didn't have a lot of disposable income. And so occasionally we'd go to the store and I'd see a toy that I wanted. And my parents were like, you know, I'm sorry, we can't afford it. So I would go home and I would make a recreation or modification of that toy out of cardboard and construction paper and crayons and tape and glue. And I loved it. I loved designing things that were entirely my own and seeing that kind of come to life. And I also love Star Trek. I -hmm. I grew up watching The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I was like the engineers too. I didn't really wanna be the captain, but I wanted to be like Geordi LaForge, Mm -hmm. uh, LeVar Burton's character, the engineer, chief engineer on the Enterprise. Um, In the fourth grade, I stumbled across the term astronautical engineer. And in my fourth grade mind, I went building stuff, for space, yes, that is what I want to do. And surprisingly, because most of us don't don't keep on the career path that we decided in fourth grade, but surprisingly I've stayed on that path. Um, I've pursued astronautical engineering, aerospace engineering ever since then. Um, so as I started to get closer to graduation um, in high school and considering what I wanted to do next, uh, I knew I wanted to go into the military. You know, my relatives had spoken very highly about their service they were very proud to have given back to their communities to their country and I wanted to do that as well but I also wanted to pursue engineering and turns out the Air Force Academy has not an aerospace engineering degree astronautical engineering degree so I said yes that is the place (laughs) that I wanted to go Um, so I applied I was accepted um, I, I think I, I accidentally upset my, uh, general academic advisor when I was there because I declared my major after my first semester there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't realize that I should have waited. He wanted me to wait until at least my second year there. He didn't realize, you know, how gr- driven you were. How <laughs> driven I yeah. was. That fourth grade me had already decided <laughs> astronautical <laughs> engineering. <laughs> so I accidentally upset him, but, um. The astronaut- I'm sure he got over it. After, I, see, if he, yeah. if he knows where you are
0: now, I'm sure he got over it.
1: I hope so. I hope he <laughs> saw me progress and was like, okay, she actually knew what she was doing. So, no. yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, the department, of course, Astronautical Engineering Department, was very happy to welcome me early and immediately offered me very good mentorship. Um, I initially thought I wanted to go into propulsion systems, But I had a great mentor who said, I think you've got a talent for control systems and we're looking for a control systems engineer to work on FalconSat 3. Um, So he talked me into it. Sure enough, I loved it. It was very challenging, but I loved controls. And I got to work on FalconSat 3. I designed, uh, so we were flying a novel payload pulse plasma thrusters. We were trying to verify that we could use them for attitude control for the satellites, keep it pointed in the right direction. And it turned out that they were a little bit underpowered for this particular satellite. We couldn't do full uh, attitude control, but I designed a filter, uh, like an algorithmic filter, software filter, that could prove that they were working to help stabilize the position, even though it couldn't do it uh, perfectly. So I, I got to contribute that to the satellite. I also got to work in the clean room and actually have hands on the satellite itself and help put it together. Um, it launched and it just deorbited in January of this year. Oh, really? So I'm ki- yeah, I'm kind of sad. It's kind of the end of an, of an era. You know, that satellite that I had hands on is uh, no longer in orbit.
0: Mm. But, yeah. Life goes on.
1: Life goes on, yep. <laughs> <laughs>
0: New generations of Falcon sats are going up. Indeed, yeah. yeah. I actually, stopped. I just got in, involved with the space detachment a little bit because I'm thinking nice. about Space Force. Yeah. Uh, but I you kind of have to learn about all the the history of space at the Academy. Mm -hmm. And I even got to sit in on um, a brief that um, during NCLS that the kind of general Clark and his team was giving to um, a Boeing executive, Ted Mm -hmm. Colbert. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how, you know, space force is going to be a smaller branch Mm -hmm. and there isn't, there probably isn't going to be a space force academy, mm, okay. so that's why they're they're trying to fund all this space and cyber buildings on I guess the east portion of the academy. Okay, so great. Th- it's it's really cool to see how mm-hmm. space has been growing since I guess your Falcon sat has gone up. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: great to hear that. It's still growing. I gotta come back at at some point and just see all the new buildings. Yeah, I'll give and you everything. a tour. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sorry, I cut you off.
1: Oh, you're good. You're good. Oh, uh, where, were, where were we at at that point? Falcon set just Falcon came down. Sat. Yeah. So that was like oh, my last, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the last, the end of that, the Falcon set three story. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. So can you um, give us a little bit of background um, on, on your active duty service as mm-hmm. well?
1: Sure. Uh, I was very lucky. The Academy was very supportive of me. Um, having the opportunity to go straight to MIT for my first masters. Uh, so I went there first as a brand new butter bar and uh, loved it, was attached to the 365th detachment out here, which is still here. Um, and I get to work with some of the ROTC cadets here, um, which is awesome to still be able to interact with that, that entity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a Draper Fellow, uh, it's now the Draper Scholars Program, so I worked with the Charles Stark Draper Lab on a lot of my research. And uh, I was assigned to a Navy project, so we were working on estimating the ionospheric delay of GPS signals for transorbital vehicles. So I'm going to um, act like I know what that <laughs> means. <laughs> I'll offer a little, uh, I'll try to keep it to so the cliff notes. Um, so as GPS signals pass through the neutral atmosphere and the charged ionosphere, there are a lot of different errors that can cause errors in positioning. Okay. So one of them is ionosphere. It's a charged layer of the atmosphere, if you will. And so uh, electromagnetic waves of different frequencies are affected slightly differently by it. Okay. So GPS, at the time we just had L1 and L2, we have other frequencies now, but we had these two frequencies. And by measuring the delays in both of them that were related to um, the frequency and it passing through this, this charged layer, we could estimate the error caused by it.
0: And they correct for it, and then correct for it okay. exactly.
1: Um, so normally, if you're sitting here on the ground, uh, like using your cell phone with a GPS signal, the ionospheric delay changes so slowly that we often just use a model to estimate it and correct for it. But if you've got a, v- a launch vehicle that's passing through the ionosphere, or you've got like a reentry vehicle that's coming back through it from the other direction, the error changes so quickly you have to estimate it. Mm-hmm. So we used an optimal estimation algorithm called a Kalman filter. So I designed the model for it and uh, designed the the algorithm, did tests on it, proved that it worked. Uh, There was a minor change that they had to make due to an issue with the way the hardware was processing the raw signal itself. So minor change to the algorithm and then it was actually integrated into Navy hardware. And when I reached back out to Draper Labs as I was coming to MIT, um, in 2019, uh, I asked them about it, and I said, "Yeah, we're still using your algorithm." So wow! Kind of nice to still, you know, have a positive impact on on that effort.
0: The Falcon sads down, but the, <laughs> the, your technology there is still uh, arguably more important. is still yeah. going. So,
1: watch if I reach out to him now, they'll be like, "Oh yeah, just this year we replaced." <laughs> oh no!
0: <laughs> so came back to MIT, mm-hmm. made some some pretty positive impact there. Then so. you go to Engept. Yep. OK.
1: Again, uh, Air Force Academy gave me a lot of really good opportunities. Um, so I, was, I had I'd known I was going to go to NJEP um, before I went to MIT. And they were kind enough to hold that slot for me and basically just delay me two years. So I went to Wichita Falls, Texas. I flew the T-37 and T-38 there. Mm-hmm. Um, T-37 has since gone to the Boneyard. I'm really aging myself with all these all <laughs> these things that are going away. <laughs> um you know we're talking about the older older cars that we drive right yeah right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the t37 was basically like that it was kind of like an older beater car mm-hmm. but super reliable so loved flying it got to do spin training on it um really rugged great great student mm-hmm. aircraft um and then flew the t38 which was kind of that you know when you think of fighter aircraft it looks a lot like that it's what's, it's what the astronauts fly as well to okay. maintain their flight currency um, so a really cool aircraft. I felt very cool flying it, you know, getting out with my helmet and my G-suit <laughs> on, um, and uh, one of my, you know, kind of, there was a, a moment flying T-38s that I really appreciated, you know, where I was and the opportunity that I had. I was flying solo out in the MOAs, military um, operating areas, and civilian traffic slowed to pass through it. Um, they it's kind of advised that they avoid it just because of the activity. They don't (laughs) want (laughs) to. Yeah. (laughs) But sometimes they just go like, you know, Mm -hmm. screaming through it. And uh, so I'm, I'm out in the MOA. I'm the only person in the, in this aircraft, in this T-38 and uh, air traffic control calls me up and says, Hey, there's, there's civilian aircraft transiting through your area. So can you, you need to get visual contact with them and and avoid them. Well, I'm in the middle of a loop. And so I, I am, almost at the top of the loop as I get this call. And I remember looking up through the windscreen at the ground and seeing this little, like, Cessna just cruising through (laughs) my area. I was like, well, I got eyes on I should probably just, like, stay here. So I just stayed inverted and watched them until they got out of my area. And as I'm sitting there watching them, I realized like, I'm at 22,000 feet inverted looking up at the ground, and I get paid to do this. Like, this was – and it just hit me, like, how – unique of an opportunity that what, that it was, that I wasn't, you know, trying to pay for my own pilot training Mm -hmm. or, you know, try and find a place that would let me fly jets as a civilian. This was my job. Um, and, and that, you know, that realization was really, really powerful, Mm -hmm. really long days, 12 hour days. Most, most days, um, wouldn't have it any other way though. Wouldn't have it any other way. No, yeah, no regrets. That was an amazing opportunity.
0: So, did, was was U twenty eight your first pick?
1: It was and it wasn't. So uh, I think it was General Chokowski came through, and ha- was talking about special operations um, to my class shortly before, uh, shortly before our assignment night. So we we get racked and stacked based on how well we did in the program, and then its needs of the Air Force. So. You know, if they drop um, an F-16, and F-22, and um, a U-28, and the person who's number one wants the F-16, they get the F-16. Mm-hmm. And then number two, you know, they'll get, if they want the U-28, and it's still there, they'll get the U-28. So coming out of NJEP, there was very much this mindset of, hey, we're all, we're all training to be single-seat fighter pilots. It used to be that F-16s were like the default aircraft that, got assigned out of there. Around my class, it changed a little bit. We started to get a lot of remotely piloted vehicles, um, remotely piloted aircraft (RPAs) or, or UASs, um, depending on on who you're talking to. And so there was there needed to be a little bit of a paradigm shift, but it didn't happen right away. Mm-hmm. So. There wasn't this great appreciation for the opportunity to fly RPAs and support that mission. Um, so, you know, we again we were all kind of under the impression we we're going to get F-16s or something out of there. we were at least going to get a crewed vehicle. You know, we were at least going to sit in the aircraft. And and so when that when we knew that the drop was going to change pretty dramatically we started kind of looking at other mission sets. So a lot of the RPAs were in support of special operations. Um, the U-28 and, uh, was obviously in support of special operations. And so I really liked the idea of doing special operations. They were flying a lot. They were kind of making it happen in very tough environments. And I liked that a lot, but I was too attached to the, we're all single seat fighters. So I was like, oh, I don't know. I. I feel like if I have the opportunity to fly a fighter, I better take the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I did put the kind of the traditional fighters first and then U-28 was was after all the fighters. And then um, everything, I don't remember the order for the rest of them. So I think it was like, I think I had something like F-16, F-15E, A-10, I think were like my top three and then U-28 was next. And after I put it on the sheet, I still, I, I constantly went back and forth. I was like, man, I, I want the U-28 mission, but I don't know if I could say no, if I had the chance to fly the fighters. So it was actually lucky that I was, I was probably a little bit above the middle of my class. Mm-hmm. Enough that I, I didn't get assigned an RPA, um, but low enough down that I think we only dropped, I think we only dropped like three fighter aircraft and two U-28s. And a a whole bunch of RPAs. So Hmm. I got one of the U28s.
0: Yeah, I hear that a lot at the academy that, you know, people – my freshman year, we talked about – or I would hear, because I I don't want to be a pilot, so I (laughs) I didn't talk about it personally. But people would talk about how, oh, yeah, NJEP's the way to go if you want to get in a fighter. And then two years later, Mm -hmm. they're talking about, you know, you're better off going to UPT – if, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not going to be as rigorous and mm-hmm. your chances of getting a fighter are probably higher. But then mm-hmm. I also hear we're, we're in a pilot shortage. You mm-hmm. we, we don't have enough pilots for So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Do you do you have any insight on that?
1: It's I will just say it's I think it's impossible to accurately guess from our position I think there are people that, you know, higher, higher up in the decision-making process who could maybe have sure. some better insight. So I would say don't worry about it too much. Uh, go to the type of training that you want to go to. And from, from people who have flown RPAs, and I know you've talked to a lot of them too, bombers, cargo aircraft tankers, without fail everybody will say that they love the aircraft that they flew and they love the mission (laughs) so i know it's hard when you're like oh f-16 i've wanted f-16 ever since i was like big enough to toddle and you know walked around with a little like matchbox toy Mm -hmm. you will love whatever you end up flying i I promise Mm. so try not to overthink it go to the type of training you want to go to and then you know do your best to rack and stack the mission I would say prioritize the mission. Um, it's easy to get distracted again by the, by the pointy aircraft, but focus on the mission that you want to fly mm-hmm. and use that to rack and stack your aircraft. And I promise you'll be happy with whatever you get. You'll, you'll ultimately end up being happy with what you do.
0: So how was your experience flying the U-28?
1: It was, um, so I joke that it was uh, like the tale of two cities. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. The worst of times because the ops tempo was just so high. We were so tired. Uh, Every place that we went, we were flying 24 hour ops. So your sleep schedule is constantly changing. Uh, We were in such demand that we would land someplace and you'd have to go check the board real quick because 24 hours after that rotator landed, you might be flying. So there wasn't a whole lot of time to even adapt to where we were at. It's changed, I'm pretty sure it's changed now. There was only one operational squadron when I joined, the three nineteenth, and when I left there were three. So it we were doing a better job of distributing the workload Mm -hmm. across individuals. So I don't think it's as bad now as it was back then. Um so that's that's the only reason I say it was it was the worst of times. I had such amazing people that I worked with. So I I joined the U twenty eights in two thousand nine. The squadron was stood up in two thousand six. And so a lot of the plank holders, the original pilots there who stood up the squadron, who wrote the regulations, who literally wrote you know, the checklists and procedures and guidance for how to implement the U-28, they were still there. And so I got to learn from them. Yeah, that must be awesome. It was amazing. And again, these, these people were all coming from other airframes, obviously. You didn't want to take somebody straight out of UPT <laughs> to stand up a brand new squadron. They mm-hmm. didn't have background to say, yeah, this is what you want to do when you're in armed conflict. Uh, So, you know, got there at at like the perfect time, I felt like, having all that, all that experience, all that background, getting to compare notes, again, we had fighter pilots there, we had tankers there, we had um, all kinds of unique backgrounds there that all had unique insight into what this mission should look like. So that was incredible. Um, the other thing that I, I loved because this aircraft had been stood up so recently after I got there, and it was supposed to be a stopgap. Of course, it's it's still in operation today, mm-hmm. so uh, was never replaced as it was initially intended to be.
0: Um, I hear that's changing soon. There is, is a it? replacement. I I just spoke to um, Lieutenant Colonel Phil Miller. I don't know if that. Oh yeah, is that? yeah, I know Phil. Yeah, we flew yeah. together. Uh-huh. Yeah, he said he he pulled it up. There's a, he pulled up a picture on. Um, He's in the math department at the academy right now. No kidding. Yeah, oh, really really kid. smart guy. Uh-huh. But um he he just pulled it up and mm-hmm. th- I think had all the details of what it's going on. I don't even remember the name, but he oh, okay. told me there was something going on. Okay, As they a,
1: actually picked an airframe to replace. I think so. It. Yeah. Oh, My god, all my stuff's <laughs> going away. God, I feel old now. <laughs> I'm sorry and to that's break that's... the news to <laughs> No, I think that's a, it's a good thing because it was so much it was so don't get me wrong. I love the U twenty eight for everything that it was, but I think because it was so quickly spun up, I think having now having that in place and and more deliberately putting something else as as the replacement, I think it's going to ultimately end end up that we get a better product. So mm. I'm excited for for whatever comes out the other side. But also, you know, it's, it's my T thirty seven. Yeah, you know, it's my eighty five Chevy Blazer. It's going away. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hey, real quick, hope you're enjoying the episode. If you are, could you do me a favor and follow and leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also follow the show on Instagram at 4.the.zoomies to see clips of upcoming episodes and stay engaged with the community. Thanks for your ongoing support. You, you did some humanitarian relief in the Philippines. Can you break down that? Was it a part of the U-28 mission? Was that something separated?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the unique and interesting things about the U.S. military and in particular special operations is we're often poised to very quickly get to a location and stand up support for conducting some mission and support all of the people involved in it. So there have been multiple occasions where there's been some natural disaster and we've had soft personnel there and conducting operations within 24 hours. So humanitarian relief, um, coordinating the movement of air traffic in and out of an airfield, things like that. Um, so we were part of that. We were, we were in the Philippines, an area of the Philippines already. We had aircraft there. And Super Typhoon Haiyan, uh, when it went through, I was slated to deploy to the Philippines. I think within a few days of it passing through. So we were still conducting humanitarian ops there. And so we would, um, our our main job was to go investigate these different areas that had been struck and particularly affected by the, the typhoon and report back what we were seeing. So, you know, areas that were, you know, power plants that were devastated that would not be easy to repair, roads that were washed out, bridges that were washed out maybe some areas that they were temporarily blocked by some debris, but with, with a little bit of effort, we could clear it and we could start getting supplies in. Mm. Um, we also reported on, um, so the Filipino people are, are brilliant, selfless, hardworking, and very resourceful. And they knew, I mean, you could hear us overhead, you could see us overhead. So they would write tests as ground air signals along buildings, oh, along awesome. roads, yeah. And they would say, you know, this town needs medicine, food, water, evacuation. And then they would also clear out um, either fields or um, I saw a basketball court that was cleared out and they'd written a big H and a circle around it to indicate it was a helipad. Yeah, it was makeshift helipad. Um, So we would be able to report this back, um, what this town needed and the location of the helipad. And then helicopters would be able to come in, deliver food, Medicine, water. We would evacuate people. Um, I think we ended up evacuating around 3,000 people. Moved millions of pounds of supplies. And this wasn't just SOF, and this wasn't just the U.S. This was a huge international effort um, that I, I got to play a small part in. Mm-hmm. And then the the part that really touched me is, you know, we we did this for weeks on end. But as you know, things started to stabilize. We started to get you know, more or less back to c- what kind of looked like normal. It would it would take years to recover completely, but it was we started to get towards a place where you know things were more or less stable. Those G taxes changed. You know, instead of saying the city needs whatever it was, thank you from the city. <laughs> and I'm getting choked up just just thinking about it. Um, it was probably the most salient example of having done something good for mm-hmm. people. Um, kind of that, you know, sometimes it's it's tough to see when you're, you know, a small part of a small part of a small part that that adds up to some really positive change. So it was really nice to have something that was just very obviously positive mm-hmm. um, and have been part of that. So
0: Well, thank you for making that contribution on oh, behalf yeah. of America because we need people like you to, you know, uphold the the reputation of America that we are this giving force. Yeah. Do you know if there is any um the the typhoon that rolled through Guam? Actually a mm-hmm. couple of my buddies on Furl uh this the civil engineering program that they they miss out on graduation because oh, they gotta no. go go to Guam. But apparently <laughs> yeah. they were in the middle of that uh that typhoon. I don't mm-hmm. know if you knew if there was any relief program going um, on out there right now.
1: I'd be surprised if there wasn't. mm mm-hmm. Um, again, when I was in, you could almost like, as soon as we saw that there were, you know, if it was a typhoon, it was something predictable, you could expect that we would start preparing Mm -hmm. for some humanitarian response. Um, I remember the, the earthquake in, in Haiti happened like right before it became operational. So I wasn't able to help support that one, but a lot of the people at my squadron did support that. So and just knowing that we were constantly looking for those things happening worldwide in anticipation of supporting recovery efforts, I would be shocked if there wasn't an immediate U.S. response to help support.
0: Mm -hmm. You were also roped into being uh, the financial officer of your squadron, um, (laughs) despite having minimal training on that. What was that like? Mm
1: -hmm. That was uh, interesting. I learned a lot. And, uh, it was unexpected. That's not the direction I thought I was going to (laughs) go. I really thought that I was, I talked to my flight commander prior to, um, the change in assignments. And I thought I was going to take his place as, as flight commander for my flight. Um, my squadron commander was amazing. I trust the decisions that he made in terms of who went where. So I know he had a good reason to put me where I was at. It was just unexpected. Um, (laughs) So I find out that I'm going to be the chief of resources was the official title, which doesn't, it's not descriptive of what my job Mm. was. Uh, So like you said, like the financial officer for my squadron is a little bit more accurate. So I found out I was, I was going to take this job. And initially we had a civilian in the shop who was Brilliant, she'd been around for a very long time, very hard working, and also had continuity. She knew how things had done before, why they were the way they were, all that good stuff. And then we went under continuing resolution, which means that the government, federal government can't agree on a budget. We're past the end of uh whatever the the limit of the budget was, and we go under what's called continuing resolution, Mm -hmm. which means we're minimum necessary expenditures. And her position was considered quote unquote um, not unnecessary, but uh, non essential. And I, I disagree with that classification, <laughs> however, it was what it was. So she had to leave the office. She wasn't able to work.
0: Like laid Warren. off? That's um, how essentially it was laid okay. off,
1: yeah. And so it was. I didn't think you
0: could get laid off in the government. I never heard of that. I thought it was only.
1: It depends on what position you're in. So I believe they were in a contracted civilian position. And not like a GS okay. job, I think. Okay. Um, I would I would have to go and ask some people more specifics to verify that that's actually true. Um, but yeah, in, I've heard GS you you pretty much can't get rid of. But I don't think she was in a GS position. Okay. So.
0: So um, you filled her role.
1: Um. No, I was. Uh. I was supposed to. We still had like the chief of resources, um, the military personnel. Um, But she was supposed to help. And again, she's somebody who's not required to fly. So her hours are a little bit, you know, she's not going to be taken away for a full day because she has to go fly. She can be in the office, take phone calls, answer questions, things (laughs) like that. So now we've got a bunch of aviators, and that's it in that (laughs) office. So we're all still trying to upgrade, do exercises, get ready for deployments, recover from deployments, all this stuff and uh, so and now I don't have my expert there and I remember uh, I, I was in some sort of training with my squadron commander I remember sitting in this uh, classroom and, and I saw him walk in and sit down uh, shortly after I found out I had this job and I walked up to him and I was like sir I have no idea what I'm doing but I will figure it out and I know I'm going to make mistakes, but I will tell you when I make the mistakes and I will fix them and I will make sure we don't go to jail. Because <laughs> money is one of those things that you just, you can't screw up. Mm-hmm. You can't afford to screw up for a variety of reasons. Um, and he, he just did not, you know, he just kind of laughed. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, you'll he, be fine. <laughs> um, and then the second, uh, the first person I called when I got to the shop, Uh, was the group who was a civilian. Um, uh, I'm going to forget her exact title, but basically the group finance person. So I called her up, and I was straightforward. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Nobody's ever trained me for this. I don't even know what I don't know. Please help me. And she was like, all right, come on up. Uh, We'll sit down and I'll go through everything. And she did. Uh, She was so patient with me. Thank goodness I had her in my corner. And she just went through everything that I had to do, all the training that I had to do. Um, team player. Team player, absolutely. Uh, mentor in, in so many ways. And so I got to work and, you know, called her up so many times, emailed her so many times, like, I'm doing this, it's not working, what do I do? And and she would, ab- she would be able to help me out. I would not have been able to do it without her. Absolutely would not have been able to do it without her. Mm-hmm. Um, and we made it work. Um, I... I'd, been injured uh, during pilot training, unrelated to training, um, and at that point was medically unable to fly anymore, which was actually, it had a silver lining because then I was that person who didn't have to miss whole days Mm -hmm. because of a flying schedule. I could be there in the office. I could help answer questions. I could take care of paperwork and phone calls and emails and stuff that came through throughout the day. So it actually ended up, um, that was a really good position for me. Um, So yeah, we survived. And uh, I did. I did make a mistake one time. I kind of want to bring that up just so that you know people understand. It's it's not the end of the world when when you make a mistake. Um, nobody,
0: went jail, nobody went to jail. Nobody went to so jail. Nobody went to jail.
1: It was one of those. Uh, you know, there's. The, if you've heard the term, it's not the crime; it's the cover up mm-hmm. kind of thing. So people make mistakes. That's understood. If you try to cover it up, or if you deliberately do something malicious, that will get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. So the uh, cliff Notes were we had forgotten to move money from basically our big pot of money to a subplot to cover uh, certain expenses. And so this sub um, pot of money was essentially overdrawn. Um, it, at least it looks so on paper. It actually ended up that whoever ran the numbers made a mistake and it actually wasn't overdrawn but we still didn't have the processes in place to make sure that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So we got a notification along with a lot of other squadrons. Cause again, they actually ended up, um, doing the math wrong. Um, and they were like, yep, you did this thing. You need to fix it very bad. Uh, <laughs> and, and in terms of like negatively highlighted all the squadrons and then the group as a whole and, and such, So sure enough, immediately, as soon as I found it out, I I took it to my squadron commander and I said, this is what happened. These are the processes we didn't have in place. We're putting them in in place. This will not happen again. Mm -hmm. And he was like, all right, (laughs) cool. Continue. Awesome. Yeah. So he wasn't mad. Um, The group personnel weren't mad. They were just like, yeah, just don't let this happen again. And yeah, we fixed it made sure it didn't happen again. So Hmm. even when you do make mistakes, even with something as important as money, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world as long as you don't, again, take care of it, admit to your mistakes. Don't try to cover it up. That makes it so much worse.
0: Yeah. I bring the, that kind of story up because at the Academy, it's kind of hard to tell you, I guess to, to draw a comparison, our academics would be equivalent Mm -hmm. to your full-time flying. Mm -hmm. And then I'm the, I'm the communications officer of the squadron. Mm-hmm. What does mm-hmm. that mean and how it does, how? why do mm-hmm. I have to do this extra work? And so I guess mm-hmm. that uh, kind of, your story kind of relates to how the Academy is actually trying mm-hmm. to prepare us for something bigger yeah. picture. Um, so we're here at MIT, mm-hmm. you have a lot of education, a lot of higher education. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I did spend a yeah. I've spent a lot of time in school. A lot of time in school. We were we were
0: walking through the library and I uh-huh. you, you um someone stopped us and you told her <laughs> she, you were a student and I was like, She's student seems yep. like such a like a twenty year old thing but <laughs> you're you're obviously you're still kicking. Um, so what drives you to continue your education?
1: Yeah. Um, first and foremost, I, I just enjoy learning. I think we should all. Continue to learn, mm. um, be lifelong learners. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to get a degree. It's just you know you're constantly exploring a topic that maybe you didn't have, you know, a big background in. Um, so that's one thing. Second, I just I enjoy it. I enjoy kind of tinkering with with things, soon, if I can get something to work, you know, with code or with hardware or something like that, and then getting something to work, even if it's pretty simple, seeing it work on the hardware or like the right numbers print out of, of <laughs> you know, uh, a terminal on, on your program, mm-hmm. it's really rewarding. Uh, so I enjoy doing that. In terms of getting degrees, you know, I, I don't intend to be a lifelong student in, in the sense of like constantly working on the next degree. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing to aspire to being a lifelong student and just like, you know, like
0: Pokemon, Don't want to be a student like, of the game.
1: I was <laughs> <laughs> just looking to like have like the longest educational portion of my resume I could <laughs> possibly have, just like a CVS receipt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um So uh, the reason I went back to school in a degree program. Um, so I was I was medically retired from the military. And I'm doing very well right now. It it took several years of like working on diet and exercise programs to stay pretty healthy. At at the time that I got out, I was very concerned about my health and was not confident that it was safe for me to fly an aircraft either as um, the sole manipulator of the controls or as like an instructor with a non-qualified student sitting next to me. So I was pretty sure that professional pilot was not a direction I could have gone even if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, that fourth grader that wanted to be an astronautical engineer, you know, (laughs) she's still, you know, she's still in there. (laughs) And so I was like, yeah, let me, probably the easiest way to get back into the engineering, research and development is probably to go back to school and uh, get another degree. So I, as I was getting out of the military, I started, I knew I had a lot of academic study caught up on, you know, I didn't remember how to program, I didn't remember how to use a Linux machine. Um, a lot of the control, basic control theory I had forgotten. Linear algebra I hadn't used in a decade. Um, so I started going through the courses that I thought I needed to brush up on in order to get back into a deg- degree program and succeed in it. And it kept coming back to the same originator of this material. It was always MIT. It was MIT's Open Courseware. It was edX. It was um, sometimes they just had... Instructors who posted videos on YouTube or they had their own website that had the material for their course And it was the same exact courses that you could take here mm-hmm. um, In a degree program you can basically take the exact same courses that anybody getting a degree here Can take for free. Yeah, and that it blew my mind that you know MIT has been the number one engineering school in the world for over a decade and and could have charged an arm and a leg for access to the material, and they don't. They just put it out there. And I love that attitude, and I thought that mindset, that collective mindset of um, educational philanthropy was something I really wanted to be a part of, and so I decided it was MIT or bust. I was getting my PhD at MIT. um, And that started a a very long journey. Uh, I was kind of arrogant, not gonna lie, coming out (laughs) out of the military. Uh, Especially, you know, I had my master's from MIT. I had been an instructor pilot, special operations instructor pilot. I'd been a research and development officer that had done modifications to the aircraft and signed off these aircraft and test flown these aircraft. Like, I was very cool and surely MIT would want somebody like me. And the first year I applied, um, I was on the wait list and then they said no. And I was like, okay, it's probably just like, I need to just reformulate my um, personal statement and so I applied the next year and I thought I had a much better personal statement uh, I did not I got rejected <laughs> flat out that time but silver lining uh, I, I kind of looked at myself and said all right maybe part of the reason um, that they're rejecting me is I don't have recent academic experience I don't have recent true developing novel technology and science research experience. Okay. I have time to apply to another school. So I applied to Auburn university. Um, a friend of mine had attended there. And as soon as I stepped foot on campus, I, I felt at home. So I was like, Oh, Auburn, Auburn is a good place to go. Um, R1 university. Great, great program there. Um, GI bill wouldn't pay for basically redo of the same degree. So I couldn't do aerospace. Okay. Um, but I did computer science. Um, was a great supporting degree for the work that I was trying to do. I'm very glad I did it. Um, But again, because I I knew I wanted to go to MIT, I was like, all right, I'll do a second master's, but I'm going to do it in 12 months. I'm going to do a 21-month program in 12 months. I did it, but it took some discipline, yes. (laughs) I would get up at 6 AM every day. Yep. (laughs) I worked out. I went to class. I did homework until 9 PM. Um, I gave myself from nine to ten to kind of relax a little bit. Went to bed, rinse, repeat. Five days a week, um, I would take Friday night and Saturday morning and early afternoon off to kind of reset, and then I was back to it. I did it. I managed to do it. Oh, but it was. It took a lot of discipline. Um, I I did finish it. I had a 4.0 GPA. Holy um, crap. <laughs> My advisor, uh, a friend of mine, overheard my advisor after my thesis defense say that it was the best thesis defense he had seen in his 25 years there. Yeah, I, I had done some bonkers. Congratulations! Work. That's Thank you. that's actually absurd. <laughs> that is awesome. I don't know how I did it either. I didn't. I, w- I was not as confident in my research as my advisor obviously was. Uh, probably got to give a lot of credit to like the military in mm-hmm. terms of setting me up for being very disciplined and very rigorous and how I conducted my research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of that experience translated pretty well. Um, so I had, I had a lot of people on my side, professors who were willing to write good letters of recommendation for me. And I had research experience. I worked in the UAV lab my first year there, um, Unfortunately, I was only six months into this 12-month program, or less than that, uh, four months into this 12-month program when I had to turn in another application to MIT. So again, I was on the wait list and then rejected my third time. But once I had actually completed that that second master's, that next application period, I was finally accepted. And I, I say this not to brag, but just to kind of show how quickly, like, your luck, if you will, can can turn around, how quickly, you know, doing the right things, putting in the right effort can change people's perspective of mm-hmm. you. So I was not just accepted, I was fully funded my first year, they gave me a department fellowship. It was rare at the time, it's actually not anymore. Now in my department, when you're accepted, your first year is fully funded for everybody so you don't have to worry about trying to figure out money that first year um i had three offers for research assistantships which would fund the duration of my program um they offered to fly me out pay to fly me out for their open house and tour uh the campus and the department so it was it was kind of a 180 from "Eh, we don't really want you to holy crap yes please come here Mm -hmm.
0: um and you think it was just because of that um masters at auburn
1: i think that was part of it so uh it was like
0: a currency flight currency flight yeah yeah.
1: (laughs) i think that helped a lot the recency of academic experience the research recency of research a big thing so i i work with one of the programs in my department that helps underrepresented groups navigate the application process because there's a little bit of an art to it there's a little bit of um a language that academia has, you know, it's kind of like writing an OPR or an EPR in mm-hmm. the military. If you don't know kind of the nuances of the language, then you can write what you think is a good letter and, it, and it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Just because of, oh, you didn't quite, you didn't use the right word here. You needed three exclamation points here. instead of so just one, yeah, you know, or you forgot to talk about PME or something like that. Um, so there's there's a little bit of a language there that I it took me some time to understand and appreciate um, Having now being involved in in the program that helps people um, Navigate that application cycle. I realized the importance of the letters of recommendation and not just who they came from but the content and again that that academic language and I felt like and it may have just been where I was in the military or things may change now. But I felt like in the military, when you got a letter of recommendation, nobody really cared what was in the body of it. They just looked at the signature line mm-hmm. and, you know, how high was that rank? How closely associated are they with the program that you want to go to? To a certain extent, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure that's not in black and white. But on the other side, you know, now hearing, hey, those letters of recommendation, it's not just who they come from. It really matters what's what's in them. Um, it is important that you get some from professors because they know how to speak that academic language and how to explain to another academic your the likelihood of you succeeding. So um, I think figuring that process out a little bit helped uh, translating you know, what we did in the military into something that an academic board not only understands, but also appreciates can be really challenging. Um, so uh, I wasn't aware that service to school existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was applying, I kind of did it all myself. Uh, I don't recommend that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really definitely find, find help if, if you're looking to do something like that at any point in your career, whether while you're still active duty or after you get out, um, get, get help. And there are great programs out there to help with that particularly got to emphasize service to school being a really good one that I, I get to work with now as an ambassador.
0: Mm-hmm. So they help you formulate, you know, the jargon into something, the military mm-hmm. jargon into something that academics can interpret and actually mm-hmm. apply some sort of value mm-hmm. academically to. What else do they do? And I'd also yeah. like to, to is, it, is it something that you pay for or... Who no. funds it? Yeah, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's entirely free to the, the veterans and service members that use it. They, it is a nonprofit organization, so they'll accept donations. They're a lot of uh, the administration part of running the company is funded by donations. Um, but it, to people who are using them, um, who are seeking mentors for navigating the process, it's completely free. Um, they offer workshops. They offer panels. I've been on a couple panels for them. And then I, I think most importantly, they offer one-on-one mentorship. So as an ambassador, I'm a volunteer. Um, all of the work that I do is, is unpaid and I'm, I'm happy to do it. That's the way I want it personally so that, you know, we can minimize the cost of continuing to run the organization as much as possible. But I work one-on-one with people who are looking uh, to go into academia. And as, as ambassadors, you have to have been accepted to the program that you're mentoring for. And that's broadly. So I've been accepted to undergraduate, master's, and PhD programs. So I can mentor people on any of those three programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I do graduate school only just because um, I'm an educational counselor for MIT. So I interview undergraduate applications to MIT. So it's kind of... Um,
0: really a conflict a, of interest kind of. Yeah, a little okay. bit of a
1: conflict of interest if I try to mentor undergraduate applicants. Mm-hmm. I'll do like panels and, and stuff like that and offer... Um, like broad guidance but I, I don't like working with people one-on-one on their application yeah. to MIT it's uh, I don't think that's good practice um, but we will will work with people anywhere from you know early on if you're trying to figure out what program you want to go into or what you want to do long-term to which school fits you best which program within the school fits you best and then go through all the nuances of applications you know requesting LORs how should they read you know how do you answer questions um, doing like you were talking about doing that translation of military speak to something that looks good mm-hmm. to an admissions board
0: yeah I actually saw this picture um it it was just a, a military ribbon Mm-hmm. And then it was the name of the ribbon and then what it actually means and mm-hmm. something that like a a, a non like civilian could understand. Mm-hmm. But I guess that, that's, that's a little bit um, kind of shrunken down version of mm-hmm. service to school. Um, so you're an advocate for mm-hmm. higher education. Mm-hmm. What do you plan on doing with all this?
1: I want to keep supporting the people um, serving this country. Um, especially soft, you know, just cause that's, that's kind of where I came from. And I feel like, especially since I, I didn't, I, it felt like I left a lot of my, my siblings behind in a really high ops tempo timeframe. Um, I didn't like the idea of, of, you know, just leaving that work to them. So mm-hmm. I'd like to keep working on technology that helps make their job easier, makes their job safer, helps them you know, protect people easier. Um, So that's what I want to do. I'm looking mainly at companies doing defense-related technology or dual-use technology, and I'm kind of looking at at companies that either the company itself is small enough that it's pretty agile, or they are, like, subsets of the company Mm -hmm. that are pretty agile that can do rapid response to...
0: No bureaucracy.
1: Uh, there's always bureaucracy there's, i wish i wish so badly that the bureaucracy wasn't a thing it just you can't get away from it mm. every t- i you know i keep finding myself being naive and going oh this is a place there'll be no bureaucracy and then i go there i'm like oh no there is a lot of bureaucracy <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you can get away from it sadly but minimizing it mm. um being able to move a little bit faster and not having to go through as much red tape is kind of what I'm aiming for. Mm-hmm. So I've got a few places in, in mind, but I haven't committed to anything yet.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I. I think. I mean, I, I'm nowhere near a level um, that you are for, you know, educational endeavors. But there is there is um, I think a line between learning and using skills mm-hmm. because um, I've heard it framed different ways. But I think my generation because we have such a immense access to information through Mm -hmm. the internet and especially YouTube that we get caught up in this loop of, Oh, I'm learning. I'm watching all these educational videos Mm -hmm. on YouTube, but that's all they do. They don't Mm -hmm. actually employ it. So Mm -hmm. where do you think that line is and how can you kind of escape that cycle? I don't know if you've Mm -hmm. ever been in it, but Mm -hmm. I, uh, do you you understand what I'm trying to do? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, i just talked to somebody i just went to softweek uh a few weeks ago and actually talked to somebody there who was kind of talking about about that they're like it's it's great that you're going to mit and you're doing this stuff and he's like i can't hire you in my company right now i need you to go someplace else and actually produce something mm-hmm. and and i was you know at first i was kind of a little bit offended i was like but i, I do all this yeah. research that I actually implement on hardware but I understood what they were saying is, you know, I'm, I'm not producing something for a client that is paying for it. And that's a different game. So I need some experience in that. Um, I would say there's kind of like an iterative process there. I think it's easy, like you were saying, to just kind of get caught up in this loop of, you know, watching YouTube. I love YouTube videos. Um, if they're produced by the right person, they're fantastically informative. Um, so watching videos and reading papers and stuff like that and not just going out and trying to implement it um, there's only so far I think you can get just with theory you have to do mm. it in practice and there's a lot to be learned in practice but there's also an iteration so you know sometimes I'll look at um, a paper and say all right I'm gonna I'm gonna use that same technique and I'll get part way through implementing it and I'm like ooh, I'm stuck at this place I gotta go back to the papers and, and see how they handled this particular issue okay this is how they did it here's how I'm gonna do it and you do it again rinse repeat um so there's a, there's a lot of learning that kind of is intertangled. so I'm not sure mm. there's a great line between the two of them but yeah we do have to do a good job of some at some point of being like all right I have to quit reading the papers and watching the videos and go like physically try to do this thing um and I would say for formal education again you know I don't want to be a lifelong student mm-hmm. and it's easy to just keep looking at oh I could get this degree and that degree and that would you know really bolster my resume at some point, you need to go out and, and be able to say, hey, I did this. I delivered this product, whatever it may be, to this entity, and it shows I can, I can take it through the entire life cycle, from concept, you know, all the way through, you know, the end user has it in their hands. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, again, kind of a, a gray line, definitely an iterative process, but, yeah, important to actually move on to the like, actual implementation.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it, I think it even goes the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, quick sidebar: mm-hmm. I don't endorse gambling, but I was playing. <laughs> um, I was playing poker, um, and there was this kid. He he was like, "Oh, I just want to get better at poker, so I'm going to mm-hmm. keep playing it." Mm-hmm. But he would he would play, and then he'd just sit on his phone between hands when he wasn't playing, and just not mm-hmm. paying attention. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of masking it on the the observation side. You're doing a lot of, I guess, quote unquote, observing, but not a lot of theory. Like, mm-hmm. you got to actually put the time and do both. It yeah. it doesn't go just one way or the yeah. other. Yeah, you're if, you're correct. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> um. What is you want to employ in a your education in a national defense um, implementation of some sort? What what's the importance you're you're carrying out your phd mm-hmm. to do this mm-hmm. and this would it this is my question is this only possible through your phd what other kind of ways can we contribute to national defense in, a, in an innovative way is it mm-hmm. through programs like the one that you're in
1: it's definitely not the only way mm-hmm. um and in fact if if you talk to a a high-ranking member, if you will, on in my department. I don't want to name names in case they don't want this to get out there. But they were talking about if you want to work in an in industry, you can pretty much just stop at your master's degree. There's not a whole lot of additional benefit to getting a Ph.D. I want the option to come back and teach, and most places will require a Ph.D. for you to be a professor okay. at a university. So that's why I was like, nope, um, Ph.D., it, it's going to be um, – so there's, you don't need to go through uh, as far as, as I have. And in fact, there are plenty of people who get bachelor's degrees and then they're working for um, a lot of uh, highly, highly technical companies, research companies and things like that. So I'm not sure there's a, there's a great cut and dry answer for that. Y- you kind of have to look at what you want to do and then who it is that's doing it in terms of like their background, their education, their experience and stuff like that. Uh, There's a lot to be said for, you know, it's very easy to hold up a diploma, Mm. especially from a school like MIT and say, Hey, this, this proves that I can do the job. Um, it's a little bit harder to communicate. Hey, I've, I may not have as shiny of a diploma as this other person that you're interviewing, but look at the experience that I've got. It's a little bit difficult. More difficult to kind of translate that in terms of, you know, making an employer appreciate what that practical experience has has done for you. Depending on the employer, of course. Um, but there's there's a lot of good experience to be gathered there too. So, uh, it yeah, it really depends on on what you want to do, and again, what the people who are doing it look like. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. 'Cause I, I want to contribute but to be mm. honest, I don't want to get a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna I wanna have some sort of impact that I can uh-huh. you know, I can know that I contributed to my, my country's security yeah. in, in an innovative way. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to know that PhD is the only route. So thank you for oh, no. yeah. for clearing that up for me and hopefully other cadets that feel similarly. Mm-hmm. Um to round this podcast out do you have any unique advice or insights that you'd love to give to cadets who uh, were once in their shoes?
1: Yeah. So you know, you've interviewed a lot of very interesting people with phenomenal backgrounds who I'm, I'm sure have offered some very insightful advice. And so I tried to try to think of of something that's maybe something they haven't brought up, uh, maybe something interesting. Uh, and, you know, some, some insight that I didn't have until much later in my career, you know, even when I was a cadet, you know, wearing my uniform around Colorado Springs, I would have veterans and service members come up and say, thank you for what you're doing. And I didn't, it, it seemed at the time um, insincere because I didn't understand, you know, I hadn't done anything, you know, I was still in training. I didn't feel like I had done anything big, so I didn't really understand where that thank you was coming from. It wasn't until I got out, and especially because, you know, I was basically medically unqualified to continue to serve, and even though I would have liked to have. That now I can look at people like you who, you know, we're, we're an all-volunteer force. Nobody was drafted into service. You said, hey, I'm willing to be the person who, you know, stands in between the danger and and people you've never met before Mm. and that means something just saying that you're willing to do it even though you're in the process of training that means something it means a lot to me as somebody who you know so to speak can't can't continue to watch anymore to know that there are people out there like you who are still volunteering to do it so when i say thank you for your service to you and and your peers and anybody else listening to this Thank you for your service. I mean
0: that. Well, thank you. I um, I I I've been walking down Old Colorado Springs plenty of times, and I I have this kind of I'm like I haven't done anything yet. All I'm doing is getting an education. I I've only taken taxpayer dollars thus far. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that runs through my mind. So, but like you're saying, the intention of hey, I will carry this out, and I will contribute to this defense that is um something respectable so i appreciate Mm -hmm. you giving that um that insight from somebody who's reflected on it many years later follow-up question Mm -hmm. what do you say when somebody says thank you for your service
1: i say thank you for your support
0: that's a good one i've never actually heard that one
1: (laughs) i totally stole that from somebody else and i don't even remember who it was i'm kind of embarrassed i don't remember who it was so I'm just passing on the wisdom of somebody else um, but same deal I, I heard it and I was like yeah that's a good
0: one well I'll remember your name when I somebody <laughs> asked me what I said
1: I don't know what to put in my citation section <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you very much for your time and your patience and getting this coordinated here at MIT so um, it was great talking to you and I hope this, this reaches a few years
1: and thank you for doing this. This is something I would have liked to have had when I was going through a new so... I'm glad that you're doing it for your colleagues. Of course.